Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is going to be a great one. I am talking to author, historian, poison enthusiast, Eleanor Herman, who recently wrote a book called The Royal Art of Poison. basically focuses on the royals, the Western royals right around the Renaissance time. And just, it's kind of amazing just how, how widespread poisoning was. I remember reading one book, uh, and they called Arsenic Inheritance Powder. And it just kind of kind of shocked me in a way in how ready and willing and able people were to kind of knock off their social betters in order to climb the ladder. I mean, I guess in these, this day and age, people kind of knock off their corporate rivals by spreading rumors or lies or whatever stops them from getting the promotion and helps the, the uh, perpetrator get the, get the promotion. But it was death in the olden days, a little more permanent than... than uh, the current struggle. But anyway, I digress. Let's get right into this with Eleanor Herman. Eleanor, thank you for being on the program today. Now, I think the most interesting place to start is with Lucretia Borgia. Why don't you tell me a little bit about her? And I think this will really kick off this. We'll jump down the rabbit hole immediately. Lucretia Borgia. So she, the Borgia family, um, the, the, the father was Pope in the 1490s. And um, the uh, the daughter um, had the reputation for poisoning. The whole family did. Italians had a terrible reputation for poisoning, and there was some uh, truth to that. Uh, and poor Lucretia, I doubt she ever poisoned anyone, but but she, there's this legend that that she did. And so when we think of poisonings today, um, we normally think about that period in time in the Renaissance. Um, but the truth is that Vladimir Putin is poisoning people. Um, who disagree with him, uh, journalists, activists, politicians. Um, just in March, two people were uh, poisoned in uh, the town of Salisbury in the U.K. Wow. And you think it was back to Putin? Oh, yes, absolutely, because um, these days labs can um, determine uh, what the poison is, and in the cases of nerve agents or radioactive poisons like polonium-210, which he's used on several people, they can often trace it back to a particular nuclear reactor or a particular lab in Russia. Wow. That's amazing. That is, I mean, because that is such a great ending point. I love that teaser because um, I was, that stuff's, uh, you know, at the end of the book and it kind of blew my mind. It was like, I was almost scared for your life because <laughs> you're talking. <laughs> well, and you, you know, you, the thought has crossed my mind, but yeah. I, Putin, um, Almost invariably, as far as I know, he, point, he, he assassinates Russians who he feels are traitors. Uh. So not being a Russian, I think I'm, I'm pretty safe. Well, that's very bold of you. I am impressed by your bravery. Um, but so now let's go. Let's go back in time a little bit because I, okay. I noticed, it's because it's interesting. Because in your book, you do focus on a very specific time period. So is that so? That's during that's the Renaissance poisoning. Is that kind of like the the heyday? I guess you could say. Well, it is for uh, a, a few reasons. Uh, poisoning has always been around, or perhaps better yet said the fear of poisoning, the rumors of poisoning, because the mm. fact was until, until, you know, within the past 150 years or so, people really didn't, doctors didn't know why people died. They didn't really know. I mean, <laughs> right. they, they, they didn't understand uh, germs. They didn't understand how cancer worked. And, um, you know, people would die. And if you were a person of importance um, at a court, everyone would whisper, poison. And in many cases, the person had been um, ill for months, and then they'd say, oh, slow, you know, chronic poisoning. They'd be getting a little bit of poison every day to make it look like um, a natural illness. So, So rumors were rife, but the reason I focus on the Renaissance is that it was a period of great literacy. 
Um, the printing press had been invented, and um, just about everybody who was anybody um, uh, knew how to read and write, and there were uh, letters and memoirs and books, and uh, there was a diplomatic corps, so every kingdom had diplomats in every other kingdom writing them letters. And so all of this information about um, poisoning has come down to us. Whereas a few hundred years you know, earlier, say before the printing press or the dark or, or middle ages, there is, there's just less material um, for a researcher like me to uh, to dig up. That's so fascinating. I mean, it's because it is kind of cool because you talk about it in a sense – um, being like the heyday because it's you know there there were some people who were perfecting it during that time period which you know as you said there's a fear it's always kind of been throughout history uh, and I want to go through because you do you do a great job of like breaking down all of the poisons like that were po like fashionable poisons I guess you could say which I found really interesting but I do like this time period because it was kind of perfected and you mentioned it was perfected by the Italians. Um, so why why was that the case? Why was it centered in Italy, and and how was it perfected? Um, I, I think it was centered in Italy. You need to know that a lot of the records we we just we don't have, mm. but we do have records for um, the uh, the Archduchy of Tuscany, so where Florence is in, in central Italy, Venice. There there are some records. Um, uh, and there is the story that King Philip II of, Pain, of Spain, he was the one with the Armada who fought Queen Elizabeth in the 1580s, he also had a, a poison factory. So these were kinds of, you know, picture a, a weapons lab. Um, so okay. they would grow, you know, various plants, and they, they had, um, you know, heavy metal mineral poisons, and they would test them on animals and, and on condemned criminals. Um, as well, and then they would test antidotes. So the, these were scientific uh, labs. Um, in, in some cases, the, the goal was not only to poison one's enemies, but to find antidotes for poison. So if you're the king and you're worried about getting poisoned, you would have a variety of antidotes um, nearby. So as soon as you got a stomach ache, you could take some of these things. So that, so that also was, was the purpose. It was kind of a chemistry lab. That's so fascinating. I mean, because it's interesting to think that, you know, there were people really focusing on the formula to make it odorless, tasteless, you know, to, not traceable so that everything did look like a natural occurrence and not the diabolical scheme of some ruler trying to grab for power, you know. That's right. And some of my favorite stories are the condemned criminals who they, they tested this stuff on. Um, they were... Your favorite stories? That's so well, dark. They, they, well, the whole thing is pretty... <laughs> I mean, they're funny in a way. I mean, they're sort of dark and sort of ridiculous. I mean, sure. it, these people were volunteers. So, you know, if you would rather go and be hanged oh, okay. or, or pulled apart or something, that's your choice. <laughs> right. But they, they would offer you um, another uh, opportunity. So if you take this poison that we're developing in our lab... And then you take the antidote, so you, you might have a chance of surviving it, right? I mean, who wouldn't go for that than going out and being, you know, beheaded or something? So um, a lot of the condemned criminals volunteered, and some of them did survive. You might have a, you know, horrible stomach ache for two or three days, but then you could go home. So that, hmm. that was one way they tested it on, um, on humans. Well, you know, I, I I don't know. I don't know that if if I have a choice between getting my head cut off, which is, you know, I know Quick. we now have records. Well, we know records now that your brain's alive for a couple seconds and that it's not quite as painless as we believe it to be. However, it is uh -huh. quick, um, and with a poison, you don't know what's going on, right? No, you don't. And I, I mentioned one case where the guy was so sick for like nine hours. I mean, you know, total diarrhea and puking and muscle spasms because you don't have enough water in your body. And he, he said, you know, before he died that he wished he'd just gone out and been hanged. Right. <laughs> it would have yeah. been better than Definitely. what he went through. I mean, it sounds miserable. I mean, because it's funny because even now, like I had a friend who, you know, uh, to make a little extra money, he did like clinical trials for, you know, pharmaceuticals or whatever. And I thought that was pure insanity. Um, and, and this is like one step above that, which is, you know, you could possibly die, but you're still like a guinea pig. Yeah. Uh, and I know you're condemned to death. I know there's a chance you could live, but sometimes, you know, as, as you kind of point out in this book and, and as modern, you know, as the history of medicine has shown us that sometimes the process is more painful than, you know, 
just the natural course. Yes, yes, it is. So, you know, in, the, in terms of natural illnesses, doctors were the ones who hastened many people into the grave, yeah. um, despite their best efforts. I have a whole chapter on murderous uh, medicine, and they would prescribe things with mercury, with lead, um, with arsenic. Um, one reason these medications were in certain cases effective is because they are poisonous. So if you had a bacterial rash mm. on your skin and you rubbed a little arsenic skin cream on it, the arsenic would poison the bacteria. Oh, uh-huh, right. But really antibiotics. Away, right? Yeah, it killed it. But you know, if, you, if you did it regularly, depending upon your genetics, your constitution, your diet, everything else, you know, it, it, could, it could kill you. Um, they also love to give um, mercury for constipation, and because mercury is poisonous, it, it would get you moving again rather quickly. <laughs> well, you do mention, and you know, it's funny because you do mention with mercury that if you if it's ingested, it goes right out of the body, but it's being absorbed yes. and inhaled where it's deadly. Yes, it's deadly um, it, when it when it's inhaled because it goes right to your brain, right. and I think it's one of the few things that um, actually goes through the blood-brain barrier. It's called, mm-hmm. um, and it can turn your brain to absolute mush. In the 15 and 1600s, um, a wealthy man's pastime would be um, having a, a chemistry set in his basement. So, and he would um, cook up quicksilver. Which, as you said, when ingested, it generally uh, won't hurt you. It comes out in one piece pretty much. It doesn't absorb into your gut. But if inhaled, um, it, it, can, it can kill you depending upon the amount you inhale. Um, as it did most likely to King Charles II of England in 1685, he had evidently had some kind of an explosion in his chemistry lab in Whitehall Palace. And um, it didn't get him immediately, but a few hours later in the middle of the night, he had what seemed to be a stroke, and, um, and he died. And they just found a really strange-looking brain in the autopsy that they couldn't explain. Um, but these days, you know, modern doctors looking at the autopsy report figure it, it, he died of uh, inhaled mercury poisoning. Wow. That's, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it is, it is funny because there is this huge overlap between medicine at the time and poisons because essentially they were the same thing except, you know, when, when we think of poisoning, we think of, you know, assassinations, people killing for financial gain or for, you know, grasping power uh, from those that are weaker, you know, things like that. But there was a lot of poisoning being done in the natural atmosphere and through physicians and, you know, you even have a, a whole section on cosmetics. And people don't think of that as like the slow poisoning that happened just, you know, quote unquote, naturally at that time. I, most people, uh, and we're talking about wealthy people, because only the wealthy could afford the poisonous doctors and the poisonous cosmetics. Lucky them. Um, so if you were a sick farmer, you know, you'd stay in bed and um, your wife would bring you chicken soup and you'd probably have a pretty good chance of survival. If you were wealthy, they, they, they'd give you um, poisonous um, medications to drink. They would take the blood out of your body. They would slaughter a chicken and, and let it putrefy on your head over the course of several days. I mean, they did really strange wow. things that promoted in, infection. And when they take blood from your body, you no longer have, have the ability to fight off an illness. That's the worst thing that, that they could have done. And yet it was the first thing they did. Um, in terms of cosmetics, you know, I think a lot of women died from, from just, you know, long-term, slow, chronic poisoning from their cosmetics. And they'd kind of fall into a decline and they'd lose weight and they, they couldn't uh, eat very much and then they would eventually die. I think it was because of cosmetic poisoning. Their, um, their face makeup, the foundation, was made of uh, mercury and lead. You know, lead was white. And um, the, the red cheeks and lips were uh, mercury. And then um, they would top that off with a fine dusting of arsenic face powder. They had, uh, they had lice everywhere in their hair and their bodies. And so they would rub arsenic um, lice cream into their uh, hair, and that would get absorbed. 
Um, I found a, a funny recipe book. You know, in the, after the advent of the printing press, you know, there were all of these books about how to make home recipes. Like if you have, I don't know, if you sprain your ankle, you, you make a poultice out of this and that. And uh, also how to cook up your own medications and um, cosmetics. And there's a recipe for um, a mercury face mask. You cook it up with vinegar and eggs and all kinds of things. You leave it on your face for eight days. And then you rub it off with bread uh, and steam. So, you know, eight days, a a poison on your face. It would be a wonder if you had any skin left at all. (laughs) Did, did Did the skin just peel off with the mask? Um, I think it's it got rid gruesome. of the top layer. It was kind of like going to an, a, a facial where they have like, like a, a dermabrasion. Yeah. yeah, it was like a chemical peel. Wow, like a homemade chemical peel in the Renaissance period. <laughs> right. Do you, do you have pictures of these these um, these recipes? Yes, I do. Will you please send me some? I got, I got to put some of these up. These are this is amazing. Oh, uh, absolutely! I, I'll give you the link to the whole book. Um, you know, I used to be 10, 15 years ago, I'd get on a plane and go to Europe and, and look at these uh, documents. But these days, so many things are online. You just, you it's know, you, 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 and you can print out the whole book. It's on some lot. This book is in a library in Texas, but it was printed in England in, um, in 1595. And I'm just reading this stuff laughing and so glad that I didn't live back then. <laughs> well, so you, so you read this book laughing. You've got kind of a dark side, I imagine, Eleanor. What got you? <laughs> I guess I <laughs> a little, yeah, gallows humor, as they call it. So, so what got you into poisons? Well, I mean, what made what sent you down this dark path? Are you looking to poison? Should, okay, so, should anyone be worried? Are you are you cooking up poisons at home? What are you doing? I know my husband says every time he sits down to dinner, he's a little bit worried. But <laughs> it's um, a unicorn. I, I was yeah, the unicorn. I um was researching uh, my other book, Sex with Kings, which looked at royal mistresses at European courts and sex with the queen, which looked at queen's love affairs. And whenever anybody would die, no matter how old they were, how many months they had been ill, what their symptoms were, everyone said, oh, poison, you know, he, she was was poisoned. And I I, I just kind of put that... um, that idea aside, and I thought one day I want to come back and write a write a book about um, royal poisoning, and I want to work with doctors. And of course, these days a lot of these kings and queens have been um, dug up mm-hmm. and submitted to all kinds of scans and tests, so you can really find out um, what's what's going on. And I I looked into the cases of twenty uh, purported poisonings at court, and um, I I found that four of them were uh, intentional murders, as far as I could tell, and the other 16 were just natural death. Hmm. Wow. So the paranoia around it was much higher than the actuality. Absolutely. Um, If you picture a few hundred years ago, let's say you step on a nail, I mean, you could get tetanus and, and die horribly, right? If you get a cold and then it develops into bronchitis, you could die. Um, if you fall off your horse because everybody was riding and you have some internal bleeding, you could die. There are just so many things that we take for granted that, you know, if, if you've got a problem, you, you go to the, the doctors. And back then, there really was no doctor that could, uh, that could help you. Well, yeah, they'd make matters worse. They would you'd end up in the morgue. They would... They would kill you. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> that, I mean, that, that is crazy stuff. I mean, the, the old medical practices is a whole different episode. I mean, that's there's, a, it's it's insane the things that we've done throughout history, which is actually funny because I don't think there's any point in history where we actually know what's going on with the human body, you know? Because even nowadays, people think that they know, but we don't know. We don't really know. We've got a better well, handle on can, it. I think we can safely say we know more. Definitely, yeah, than, for sure. Than I mean, in the Renaissance, they thought that your health was dependent upon your four, your balance of four humors, black bile and yellow bile. And, and for instance, if you, um, if, if you had a cold humor, they'd put a red hat on your head at night, and then they'd cut a hole in it so that the evil humors could go out the top of your skull. I mean, they did really, really well, stupid like things. So we know stuff. more. We know more. But I still think... Um, there are some lessons to be learned from looking back at history because, you know, we laugh at them. And I think 100 years from now, people are going to laugh at us. I mean, think about chemotherapy, that you, you know you're injecting 
poison into a person, and there, there probably will be repercussions even if you cure the current um, cancer, that 100 years from now they'll say, wow, why didn't they know that all they had to do was blah, blah, blah. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and I think we're also poisoning ourselves in some other way. Is it, is it Roundup in the environment? Is it dry cleaning? Is it something to do with cell phones? Um, you know, there's something we're doing that we don't really know what it is, but, you know, cancer's going up, autism is going up, dementia is going up. So in a way, we are sort of in the same boat as they were. No, and that's the exact point that I'm making is that we think we know more now, but we actually are doing similar things. Like for to take your chemotherapy example, I mean, what's the difference between that and rubbing arsenic on syphilis? You know, I mean, they both are just kind of shotgun attempts to cause a problem or to cure right. a problem, and it works. To cure a problem, and and the right. it was actually mercury with oh mercury. With I'm sorry, mercury did work because this they, they didn't know why things worked, but they were really masters um, of you know try trial and error. So they try everything, and then the one thing that worked, they would try it again. So mercury um, you know, syphilis is a bacteria. And the mercury poisoned it. So sometimes it, it, would, it wouldn't cure you. You would still, you know, have it dormant in you, but it would right. cure all your symptoms, which is really, you know, the, an important thing. Um, so, yeah, they knew it was poisonous, but they also knew it was your only shot, just right. like chemotherapy now. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's just it's, we're no different uh, than we were before, we just think we are, which is the problem with humanity, but that's another bigger topic to go into. Uh, I want to talk about the unicorn horn, because we mentioned that, but I think a did. lot of people won't know what we're talking about. No, they won't. So let's get into that, because you know, when we talk about poisons, and you talk about the paranoia, you know, you're talking kings and queens, it's people with power were the most afraid of losing it, because other people waiting in the wings wanted it quicker. You know, correct. I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of funny. Like, I, I love the fact that Queen Elizabeth has been ruling for you know what is it, sixty years or whatever. Uh, but I'm always shocked that no one's like taking a stab at her because Prince Charles is going to be king for like you know five years or whatever. <laughs> uh, I've just I've always wondered that. But you know, God save the queen. Hope she has a long life. But obviously, they don't have the power they had before. But right. back in the days we're talking about the Renaissance period, there's always someone coming after you. So people had to take mm-hmm. precautions, and the mm-hmm. unicorn horn was one of them. So tell me about it. So they, they believed in unicorns because, you know, they heard about things like giraffes and elephants, and maybe they'd never seen them, but they, they had reason to believe they existed. And unicorns were very rare and magical creatures, and periodically someone would come to Europe and say, you know, I found a unicorn horn, and it was this seven, eight-foot-long sort of twisted piece of ivory. And I, I'm not sure how it started, but... Unicorn horns got the um, reputation of sweating and trembling in the presence of poison. So uh, before the king and queen ate, the, um, the valet would come out with this horn and wave it over all the food and look at it to make sure it didn't sweat or tremble. Sometimes he would dig it into, you know, the roast beef pie or whatever to, to try to just, you know, get rid of all the poison. Mm-hmm. The Doge of Venice had unicorn horns thrown in his, um, his uh, water cisterns under the, the palace so that nobody would poison his water. And the, the price of a unicorn horn was 11 times its weight in gold. So wow. you could buy a, a castle for uh, you know, the, the cost of a unicorn horn. What they didn't know was that <laughs> this wasn't a unicorn horn. It was the, a tusk of something called a narwhal, which is a, a fairly small Arctic whale with one long tusk. And at the time, they were, you know, people were starting to really explore. Um, they thought it was odd that, that all the unicorns went to Arctic beaches to die, because that's where they found all the right. horns. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so funny how people it, – it's weird how so many coincidences – it's like correlation is causality back, back then. You know, it's like, oh, this, this must be where the unicorns live, because there's all these horns on the beaches, but no one understands well, why. Well, there was a certain logic to it. I mean, sure. you can't fault that. Sure. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, the same people were saying that it trembled and sweated and roast beef, and that's probably because the person was scared that if they didn't detect the poison that they were going to get their head chopped off. Well, I think it was the servants um, 
trembling and sweating because yeah. the minute you know the king grabbed his stomach, they could all be tortured of to course. see if they had poisoned him. And and you need to also know that back then there were so many cases of a food poison. Have, have you ever had like real food poisoning? Uh, I mean, a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, Knock not just the stomach Jeez, flu. Give, I mean, it jinx they, me right now. Jeez. Oh, uh, it, no, it brings every last drop of water out of your body in the most oh. horrific way. So, and that's these days when you have refrigeration, you have thermometers to test the food, you have food inspectors. Um, you know, back then the kitchens were filthy. They had rats running around, cats to chase the rats. They had um, dogs turning the, the spit, you know, to turn the meat. And they were all, they had their waste everywhere. And, and so there was, it was, you know, rampant with infection. And I've tried cooking meat over, um, uh, you know, in a spit, in a hearth. No matter how you try, part of it is sort of underdone and part of it is sort of charred. Well, you've personally so you done this? Yeah, I've taken a um, an 18th century cooking lesson, which is you know, pretty much the same as Renaissance, really. Um, and just to understand a, the difficulty. Well, hold, on, hold on, hold on, right? hold on, hold on. We got to step back. That's a thing you can go and learn how to cook in the Renaissance period. Um, yeah, you can. I, I went to a historical house in Virginia. It was built in the 1700s, uh-huh. and you know, every year or two they had this cooking weekend, yeah. um, and we had to like haul buckets of water to wash the dishes, (laughs) scrub them with salt and stuff. Immersive. This is a really um, immersive experience. But I I understood how how you could so easily get sick just from the regular kitchen back then. And, you know, there's only one major difference between, you know, natural food poisoning and arsenic poisoning. Do you know what it is? Um... I don't. I would obviously say the detection of arsenic in your system, but that's silly. There's got to be something else that you're hinting at. Um, it's the presence of fever. When you, ha- when you have oh. a normal food poisoning, you have a high fever because the body recognizes oh, it as a, an invasive bacteria, and it's like, oh, I've got to burn this out of, out of the system. Right. You know, I'm going to get real hot and kill this thing. Right. Arsenic is a metal. You know, it's a mineral, and so the body doesn't recognize it as uh, a bacteria. So it doesn't, it doesn't um, create a fever. But right. it does recognize it as something that's harmful, which is why, you know, you, have, you throw up and diarrhea to try to expel it as quickly as possible before it gets absorbed. But nobody knew hundreds of years ago that if you had a fever, it was not poisoning. It was a natural uh, disease. Huh. I did not know that. That makes so much sense. So that, that explains the, why people thought so many things were poisoning. Absolutely. But the first thing, you know, I was working with this wonderful doctor, Dr. Philip Mikowiak, um, at the University of Maryland um, School of Medicine, who helped me, um, you know, looking at all these cases and trying to figure out, you know, what killed the person and, and that kind of thing. And he told me that, you know, that arsenic, heavy metal poisons do not cause fevers. Hmm. Um, and it, but th- there are cases where, for instance, in the 1300s, there was a warlord named Cangrande della Scala, who was taking over um, northern Italy. And he just conquered the city of Treviso, and on his triumphal procession, he felt unwell. He had a fever. He had drunk from a polluted stream, um, which is probably where the soldiers were going to the bathroom. And that happened a lot. You know, it would give you an upset stomach for a few days, and usually you would um, survive if you didn't get too dehydrated. But he was feeling unwell, went to bed in the palace and died four days later. And they dug him up a couple of years ago uh, in the cathedral in Verona and were delighted to find that he had naturally mummified. So all his organs were there. They could you know, look at wow. the stomach, the intestines, the liver. And they found that he had ingested a kind of um, tea of chamomile and mulberry, which is what a doctor would give you if you had a fever at the time, but also prodigious amounts of digitalis, which is a poisonous uh, flower. So it seems that he had a fever, and then the doctor gave him medicine to um, finish him off. Wow. And this, that's foxglove, right? Yeah. Wow. And it's an extraordinarily poisonous flower. It is. It interferes with the, um, the the electricity in your heart. It either slows it down or speeds it up. But your your heart just you know depending on how much you ingest, mm-hmm. um, your heart ends up stopping. Wow, that's insane. I mean, these things are 
it, it's funny because there's a whole, you do go through a whole list of natural poisons, and there are so many poisons in the natural world. Um, the obvious defense mechanism for the plant itself, but it's just amazing, like how potent some of these things are. And and with that particular um, with that particular instance, no one knows whether it was on purpose or not. But you're yes, it was definitely on purpose. It was definitely on purpose. It was because it was a huge amount, and um, it was a fatal amount. And do- any doctor would have known. <laughs> First of all, he, they shouldn't put any digitalis in something you would ingest. They used it at the time, like if you had a sprained ankle, they would make a kind of poultice with it, mm-hmm. and it would help the swelling go down. But to, you know, for someone to in- ingest, they knew it was deadly, and um, they gave him such a, an overwhelming amount with the medicine that he thought was going to help cure his fever oh, I see. that yep. it was clearly um, a murderous intent. Wow, so you got to be kind of an investigator in some ways. Yeah, I'm a, like a detective on TV. <laughs> right, just like on t- it's like cold cases, like really, really, really cold cases. Yeah, 700 year old cold cases. <laughs> well, now let's go, let's go back in time a little bit further because I like this paranoia aspect. Uh, be, and and that kind of caused a lot of people to do a lot of weird things. The unicorn, one of those. But there was also a book written on this uh, in 1198 um, by the scholar Maninides. Am I saying that correctly? I think it's Maimonides. 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 Yes. He wrote a treatise on how to avoid being poisoned. So this is this is obviously a thing. Well, it has been a thing um, at least since Roman times. I don't know if you ever watched that um, that BBC show, uh, I, Claudius. It was made in the early 70s, but it's been around for years. It, it was about the Roman imperial uh, family uh, in the first century AD, but they were all poisoning one another. And it, it's based on records of the time, you know, historians, Tacitus, and, and, and others who wrote about these astonishing things that were happening uh, at the top of, of Roman government. They were all poisoning each other. Um, so, um, we have a few records from that time and then came, you know, the dark ages where we don't have a whole lot of, of records, but Maimonides, um, wrote a treatise. He was, um, a, a renowned Jewish scholar who, uh, was working for the, uh, Sultan who was, um, very concerned about being poisoned. So he, uh, Maimonides wrote this treatise to, to let him know what to look for. One thing was, if if something tastes off, if if it really just doesn't taste right, put it aside. Don't eat it because you know usually you could taste something different in mm-hmm. in a poison. Yeah, um, and for that reason, they they like to mix poisons. An assassin would mix it with stew, things that had garlic and onions and meat and a lot of different flavors, so that you really couldn't detect um, something strange in mm-hmm. the dish. Makes sense. Well, it's because funny because like on the the three things I wrote down which I thought were interesting were no uneven textures, don't eat those. Mm-hmm. No onions or garlic, as you mentioned, and no sour, pungent, or heavily flavored dishes, so that it would mm-hmm. hide all that. So I imagine you know the very paranoid would be eating like bread and water, basically. <laughs> well, the funny thing was they all you know, you've seen it in movies, I'm sure they had uh, food testers. So the guy nibbles a little from the you know, the king's meat and, you know, kind of switches it around in his mouth as if it were wine and makes a face and then he nods. Um, I imagine (laughs) they were testing for, as Maimonides wrote, you know, textures, flavors, that kind of thing, because if I gave you uh, arsenic in your cheeseburger, you wouldn't know it for probably two hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because it takes that long to get down to your stomach, and that's where it starts getting absorbed into the bloodstream. That's where it would literally kick in. You'd feel like a horse kicked you in the gut, and you would have, you know, all kinds of digestive complaints. Um, so the king's not going to wait and look at the food tester for two hours while right. he's, you know, his food is getting cold. So I, I don't know if they knew that. I suspect they didn't. But I think at least the te- the, the tester could figure out um, if something just tasted wrong. Well, also kind of kept them honest so that you know that the person touching your food or handling it isn't going to be the one poisoning you because they're the ones who are going to have to eat it. Yes, that was the other advantage. And, and the funny thing was, I, I discovered in my research that but they were afraid that um, one of the servants at the banquet might smear poison on the spoon or inside the cup. And so they all had to, once they set the table, they all had to lick 
the, the pieces of cutlery that they had put there. Wow. <laughs> so they were depositing <laughs> germs, but nobody sure. knew about germs. So. Sure. And, and then Henry VIII was also very paranoid, and with good reason. You know, he killed so many people um, that someone would poison him. And he was afraid of poison being absorbed from his uh, sheets on the bed. So his um, gentlemen of the chamber, after they made his bed, they would have to kiss um, the sheets and the, and the pillowcases um, to prove that they had not poisoned his bed. Well, and that was, I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I love the gentleman of the chamber because there was also, I think it was Louis XIV had the office of the goblet and the office of the royal mouth. Um, and, and, oh, and the groom of the stool, don't forget that. What's that? What's the groom of the stool? Well, the clothes stool, it was actually a stool with a lid on it that you take off and there was a pot in there, so it was their toilet. So the groom of the stool had the rare privilege of wiping the king's butt. (laughs) And the groom of the stool often had to sit on the chamber pot with his bear behind before he let the king use it to make sure that there was no poison on it. And they, they would just wait to see if he got like all red and blistered on his rear end before they would let the king sit on it. That's insane. I didn't know about that. Is that where we get the term stool for poop? Yes. Wow, that yes, is. Yes, because it was a that. wooden stool, you know, and then they put velvet and fringe and all kinds of stuff on it later. But sure. it was it was a stool Literally that a he stool. sat on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's crazy because there were topical poisons. So you meant, you know, sea cushions, tablecloths, utensils, um, you know, chamber pots, and the clothes. I mean, they were they were all kind. I mean, there's paranoia everywhere. I mean, the paranoia was a cottage industry in and of itself because it employed, you know, I think you mentioned in the book like 200 plus people, depending on the monarch. Um, you know, there's a lot of money trading hands to keep you from, from getting poisoned. Yes, there was. But what they didn't know um, is that you know, a topical poison really couldn't, you know, it, let's say that they put some caustic thing uh, on the inside of your undershirt. I don't know. And you put it on, you would, your skin would start to burn, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you would take off your undershirt and, and wash and say there's something wrong with this undershirt. It wouldn't be enough you know, if it was something caustic of the time, it would not be enough to kill you. These days with polonium or a nerve agent, yes, even as much on a, as a, can, can fit on a pinhead, could definitely kill you. Um, but back then, you're like, What's the, what the hell's wrong with my shirt? You know, let's take right. this off and wash my skin. Use so, a different detergent um, and you're fine. Right. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know it, but the, um, the topical poisons would not have killed them. They were, they were also afraid of poison-drenched letters, and I, I went wow. into that. But, yeah. you know, if you open a letter, it's, I don't know, a foot away from you. It's, it's not right up against your nose. Um, even if it were, I, it really could not have hurt you. So, so they were wrong about that. So even if you had bad eyesight and you had to bring the thing really close, you wouldn't, you know. You might inhale something. Maybe mm. it, would, um, it would be burning, you know, as you breathed it in, and you would just put the letter away and say, I don't like this letter. Right. End of story. That was, that's like a pretty silly, that's like a very silly way to kill somebody. Yes. I mean, the most effective, of course, was get them to eat or drink something. Right. Well, now, you, I'll be remiss. You, I think you mentioned this earlier in the book, but, but this, is, this was kind of... When we go back to the, I don't mean to take a step back now, but I want to make sure we talk about this because this was fascinating to me. But in Venice, there was the Council of uh, the Council of Ten in Venice, uh, which, as you mentioned, with these labs, they had botanists working at, uh, yeah. at a university, and there was uh, one person who was she was executed in 1659, uh, Giuliana Tofana. And she was like the, you're going to say the name correctly. I always butcher names. I apologize. Juliana Tofana. That's it. That's what I almost said. Juliana Tofana. And she perfected, like basically was a poison perfecter, colorless, tasteless, odorless. And she was smuggling these things in holy containers. Um, so this is, they had it figured out. Yes, she did. She would sell it uh, mostly to women who wanted to be rid uh, of an elderly tight-fisted husband so they could marry their young lover or or whatever and it would it would look it was clear so it looked it could be holy water so she would sell it in a holy water jar or she would sell it in a cosmetic jar and if you added it into somebody's wine lo and behold they would die and then you would get the inheritance and your um and your freedom and you know when 
someone died mysteriously back then, if there was any chance of poison, there was an autopsy, but frequently doctors didn't know what they were looking at. They, you know, they'd say, well, the liver was blighted. What, what does that mean, blighted? Mm-hmm. Or the intestines were uh, a little dark. O- okay, what does that mean? Nobody, <laughs> nobody knew. The, the only way to make sure, to really be sure that someone had been poisoned was to scrape out the contents of the deceased's stomach Give it to a little dog and see if it died howling in pain. Aye. That's, that's the only way? Yeah. They didn't have Aye. any tests, uh, any reliable tests for arsenic uh, until 1833. A uh, British chemist named James Marsh um, developed one, and it was, it was foolproof. There were all these steps you have to take with all these chemicals and gases and different jars and whatnot, um, but it, it was foolproof. And so he thought that, you know, poisoning people with arsenic would be a thing of the past now that he had this test that would stand up in court. But the problem was arsenic in that time was being used um, to create a really bright emerald green color, which was the fashion for most of the 19th century. So your wallpaper was made with arsenic, your, your mm-hmm. clothing, your lampshades, kids' toys. And so if someone died and was suspected of having been poisoned and they did the marsh test to this person's innards and it showed up positive for arsenic, well, it could have been the wallpaper. You know? Right, yeah. <laughs> That, I mean, it's, it was everywhere. I mean, this is, it's crazy. I mean, so you get a lot of false positives is what you're saying. Well, they were real positives, but you, you, if the defense team cast doubt as to how the arsenic got in the right. person's oh, I system, see. Yeah. Yeah. you know, maybe it wasn't the, uh, the, the wife who poisoned him. Maybe he, he just, uh, I don't know, inhaled too much arsenic from the wallpaper, or he ate a candy with a bit of arsenic uh, icing on it. Um, you know, it was just hard to, uh, to really tell where it had come from. So uh, I think a lot of murderers actually got off the hook. <laughs> well, it's funny because, uh, like, Juliana Tofana, I mean, it sounds like she was kind of prolific in her time. I mean, she's a, almost like an extreme feminist, you know, like down with the patriarchy at a time, <laughs> yeah. you know, when... I wish we knew more about her. I do. <laughs> I like this. I, I like her. She's, she seems because like a she, rebel. Because she sold these poisons for, like, 50 years. I mean, I think she was in her 70s. Wow. I think they finally found out about her and executed her. But, but, but in the meantime, she'd given her recipe to other women. Right. So there were all of these Juliana Tofanas going you know all over Europe not just in Italy but uh, but also up in France you know there there was the whole affair of the poisons at the court of Louis the uh, the 14th wow. um, and it was thought that one of his royal mistresses had poisoned the other uh, which she actually had not the girl died of something else uh, but it was a huge scandal at the time wow yeah I mean there's like all these poison cells throughout Europe that's kind of amazing to think about uh, so she's a very interesting story that might be she should be the topic of another book I think I really liked her as a, as a if character. I could find more about her I would I would love to but I You're don't know you write a fiction book she's, she's amazing oh that's true yeah. it is an idea yeah it is an idea isn't it you got that from me so just give me credit in the introduction that's all I ask and 10% royalties. Um, now, we mentioned dogs howling in pain. Now, that's awful. I'm, I'm an animal lover. I've got two dogs oh, in my Me too. Own. It's just horrible. I feel like they could have done something else. I would rather have a condemned criminal than to be uh, than a dog. That's my personal thing. However, since we're yeah. talking about dogs, you tell this great story, and this is why dogs are amazing. Uh, you actually give the exact date, which is kind of cool. May 26, 1604, um, King Henri IV was saved from poison by his loyal dog, man's best friend. I love this. Yeah, story. yes. He was. So he. Um, this was the king who'd been born Protestant, converted to Catholicism, so he wouldn't die on Saint Bartholomew's Day uh, massacre. Then he escaped and became Protestant. Then he had to become Catholic again, so that they would accept him as king. And there were a lot of people on both sides, understandably, who resented him for not like picking one religion or the other and sticking with it. So he went to mass with his little dog. And the, um, the, the priest offered him um, you know, the, the uh, communion bread, and he went forward to take it, and the dog um, was pulling on his leg with, with his, his teeth, you know, don't, don't take it. And so he thought, boy, this dog's being obnoxious. So he kind of shooed him away, and he, he reached forward again um, for uh, communion, and the dog did it again. And then the king realized 
the dog knows there's something wrong. Maybe he smells something mm -hmm. in what the priest is offering me. So he made the priest eat it, and the priest didn't want to, and um, they made him eat it, and he died. Oh, dead. So, so that, I thought that was an interesting story, which brings me to another point that uh -huh. in terms of royalty, um, you know, they had everything tested, the sheets, the utensils, the food, the clothing, the chamber pot, except for two things. One of them was Holy Communion. So the mm. wine and the bread, the priest would give it to you. You, you would take it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't snap your fingers and have your tester step forward and, you know, test the wine and the bread from the priest, right? You would just take it. The, the other one was your doctor. If, if you weren't feeling well and he gave you something to drink right. um, that he had mixed up, you wouldn't have your tester taste that either. So um, that was the one case with the French king in, in Holy Communion. And, you know, the, the four cases of a real murder that I found out of the 20 I investigated, they were all, they all had the doctors involved. The doctors wow. poisoned the people. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy how people can weaponize religion, you know, for lots of different ways, but on, not only you, you foster this trust between people and then you exploit it um, to murder them. It seems diabolical. And, and the hero in the story is obviously the lovable dog who would never consider <laughs> doing that at all. Yes. That's my favorite part of the story. <laughs> I mean, and, and sadly, um, he was a great king, Henri, Henri IV. Uh, he was killed uh, a few years later, but he was stabbed. Wow. Um, but you know, a his, lot of people were not by his yeah, dog, though. Not by his dog. Yeah, no. I bet his dog did everything he could to protect him because he loved him. I don't think the dog much. was in his carriage that day that he oh. was stabbed. <laughs> That's the, I take your see. They don't need forget food testers. Bring your dog everywhere. Um, yeah, the, you're the right. You know. I love that. Now there were there were a couple other really cool stories here because I just I loved all the things that the fear of poisoning caused. I mean that's kind of like my favorite favorite theme of this whole thing is what the paranoia caused the chain you know the chain reaction ripple effect. So toadstones you talk about were used as an anti poison, um, and they actually kind of worked for a weird reason. Tell me about this. Oh um, yes, toadstones were these. Um, they were the fossils, weren't they? The, yeah, um, the fossilized the, sharks' teeth. Fossilized sharks' teeth. So they thought they had these magical properties, and the the, um, the elements of these fossilized shark teeth actually absorb poison. So the poison sticks to the toadstones in your stomach, and and just kind of all go out together. So they don't get absorbed you know, into your system and, and kill you. The same thing was true with something called terra sigillata, which is a kind of clay mm. that if you um, had it right after you thought you were poisoned or uh, a little bit with each meal, that the, the poisons are attracted to the clay and just absorb into it and then you would, um, you know, you would get rid of it naturally. So it would not be nearly as harmful. It's kind of like what we use charcoal for today. Yes, it's the exact same thing. Right. And doctors have been using that until fairly recently. If you go you know, to the poison control center or something, um, they would give you charcoal to absorb the poison. Yeah. It's amazing because one of my dogs ate chocolate one time. Um, oh. And I had to take her to get charcoal, and it was just weird to like watch them put charcoal in. And then it goes right through their system, and then their stool, now I know where that came from, is like hardened in black and looks like charcoal you put in the, obviously it's not the same <laughs> stuff, but it looks like the stuff you put in a grill, you know, it was, just, it was so right, weird, it goes right. right through you, it's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, this, this also, this paranoia also kind of fostered this very unique mentality, and I love this. And that was, and I think the first one that you mentioned in the book is uh, Mithritides, myth uh, I keep so terrible names, Mithritides? The fourth? Mithridates. Mithridates. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you Mithridates, very much. it sounds like a disease. Mithridates. Well, well, so he was protecting himself from poisoning by taking small little amounts to get his body acclimated to it. This is such a great idea to, to build up a tolerance. I love this. Yes, you know, and apparently Rasputin, the story goes, you know, the crazy Russian guy and right before the Russian Revolution, that he had done the same thing. So, um, you know, if you take like a tiny bit of arsenic Every day, you know, you get some stomach aches and whatnot, but over time your body would get used to it. So that if you took a heaping helping that someone poisoned you with, um, you might get really sick, but you probably wouldn't die. So, so Mithra, Mithridates, um, you know, was a, 
he was a very vicious king. He he killed um, you know, tens of thousands of people, and um, he was really afraid of someone poisoning so him. So at the end, here he is in his 70s. Somehow he survived all these years, and he's surrounded by Romans, and he knows that they're going to parade him through the streets of Rome and shame him and whatnot. So he takes all this poison in an effort to kill himself, and it just doesn't work. Wow. So he had his servant run him through with his sword. That was how he had to die. <laughs> God. I mean, how... Like, just to use your terms, how funny is that? Because like he, uh, you know, he worked so hard to stop himself from being poisoned, this horrible death, and ends up having to be killed with a sword, um, which is, I imagine, to be pretty brutal. I've never gone through it, but that's, um, you know, that's terrible. Yes, <laughs> couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. It's true. Uh, this also to like the unicorn horn specifically. It's funny because people also attached um, different gems and everything to kind of absorb poisons as well. I'm often curious, you know, how they thought these specific things worked. Like, what was the first time that it worked, and people thought that, like, oh, an emerald will absorb, you know, arsenic or whatever? Um, how do you think that came about? You know, they were, um, and we can sit here and laugh at them, but they right. they were really just starting to explore chemistry and biology and you know mineralogy and so they had this this field called alchemistry because they were all trying to turn different things into gold you know and and alchemistry as silly as it sounds to us it really was the father of chemistry sure, because of through all of these experiments they they learned you know about chemical properties and and that kind of thing and just like um you know as, astrology taught them in, in an effort to try to learn, you know, what their future was going to be and what, what day they should get married or wage war, they learned about astronomy. So I think that they could see the, the beauty and, and the natural qualities of gemstones, like diamonds could cut glass and, um, you know, they, they just had their own properties, which they thought must mean um, that they would be helpful in other areas as well, that they were kind of like magic stones. Mm, right. Um, like magic one of my beans. favorite, ex yes. One of my favorite examples is, um, the Royal mistress who drank the potion of gold every day. Hmm. Um, Diane de Poitier, she was the mistress of Henri II of France in the 1500s. And she was 19 years older than her Royal lover. So she, you know, oh. in the days before Botox, she was doing everything she could to look youthful. Sure. So there was a recipe for uh, a gold uh, youth potion, which is in that same book I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the author said you should drink it once a month. And she drank it every day, according to someone who visited her. Um, she drank it so much so that when they found her body a few years ago, the, the gold had seeped into the ground. There was like gold all around her from her intestines. It's just, <laughs> like so, and it vein. killed her. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it killed her. Um, but why would she have even drunk gold? So gold does not age or tarnish. Gold always remains beautiful. Right. And they thought that if you drank it, then you wouldn't age or tarnish either. It would keep you looking beautiful. Mm. So, you know, if, if an emerald, um, you, you know, is almost indestructible and it's um, gorgeous and sparkling, they, they must have thought that those magical qualities would also translate into, mm. into other things. So sympathetic magic, basically. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, nobles huh. could not afford their own uh, unicorn horns. So they, one of the reasons that they wore so many jewels was not just vanity or an extravagant display of wealth. That, that certainly was part of it. But when they were eating, they would check their, their rings and their necklaces to see if, um, you know, the stones were getting cloudy or sweating or cracking, um, because if so, it would mean that poison was nearby. Wow. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it is funny to think about all these things, but then throughout the, the murk of, you know, disinformation, I guess you could call it, there's always the rational voice. There's always one rational voice per generation that explains all this stuff away. And in this story, it's a man named um, Ambrose Paré, who was a French physician, right? Um, no, everybody hated Ambroise Paré in the medical community in uh, Europe at the time because he, he would say, you know, guys, what you've been doing for 500 years, first of all, it doesn't make sense. Secondly, it doesn't even work. Like every, everybody you use it on dies. Why don't we try it a different way? And so they, you know, they had developed their whole careers 
you know, doing things a certain way. They didn't want to hear about it. Now, Amboise Pere um, was a battlefield surge, surgeon. So in the wars of religion in France in the second half of the 16th century, you know, if you're on the battlefield and they're bringing you these dying guys and you don't have your normal medications with you or you've run out, you know, you'll try whatever is at hand. You'll pack the wound with earth, with straw, with whatever. And so he, he would take notes about all of the things he did to try to save these soldiers' lives, and some of them really worked. And they were the opposite of what the doctors were telling him to do. And he, he, was, uh, he would publish his own books about, you know, this works and this, this traditional method does not. They were furious with him. But he was so beloved by the French kings, he served four different French kings, um, that he actually did have quite a career, and he wrote these wonderful books on um, new ways of approaching uh, medicine. One of my favorite stories about him was, I just I often wonder when I look at historical characters, what would it have been like for me to be their wife? Mm-hmm. And he, <laughs> he would always have in the basement so a few corpses in like barrels, you know, pickling in barrels of alcohol. So, so let's say that, you know, there was uh, a prince who had gotten shot in the leg and the bullet was festering and he needed to go in, try to save the leg, get mm. rid of the the bullet. So he would um, fish out one of these pickled corpses and put it on the dining room table and <laughs> pretend he's doing, you know, the operation um, so that he could see where all the veins and muscles and, you know, like how, how can he do this operation on the prince you gotta, without you gotta killing him? got to get the reps in, you know. Right. So, you know, I just can imagine his wife coming in to set the table and like there's this pickled corpse all dissected on her table. But um, this is what he did. So he was just really, really logical and um, a voice of reason, you know, drowned out often by a chorus of nonsense. Right. Well, it, I was going to say you sound a lot like me, uh, except I would never have pickled bodies in my basement and would try them. But outside of that, I'm really kind of related to Ambrose Pierce. Pierce. Yeah, he he was a great guy, and he lived to be into his 80s. You know, when he was like 65 or something, he married a 20-year-old, had five or six more kids. It's like, you go, guy. Yeah, wow. (laughs) He had it going on. Well, that was at a time when people didn't live to past, you know, 60 or whatever. That would have been really old for the time. Um, You you know, often women, if if they survive childbirth, they could live to be older, but but there again, I mean, if you if you have some bacteria with your food, you get food poisoning, you're dehydrated. There's no IV line. You will die of dehydration in a matter of hours. You know, um, so many things could kill you so easily. So yeah, um, you know, maybe you live to be forty or fifty, and something would kill you. But th- this guy lived to be in his eighties. That's pretty impressive. Plus, he was always surrounded by sick people. Yeah, well, I mean, in marrying someone who's in their 20s when you're in your 60s, that'll, that'll keep you on a little bit longer, I think. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I don't know, but not from experience, but I imagine that'll, you know, it's like getting a puppy right. for an old dog, you know, they kind of get a little more spring in their step, you know what I mean, Eleanor? So, so what he would do is he, um, when people were poisoned, uh, some of these poor convicts, he, he gave them unicorn horn, and, wow. and they died anyway. Right. <laughs> so he said, you know, this, this is not working, obviously. Yeah. Well, it, it's there. There are you, you brought up a couple things there, which which there were things in your book that are kind of unrelated to poisoning, but they kind of are. Um, they're more like in the mythos of poisoning, but we find out later that they're not. Which I have to talk about before we finish up. The first one is how there were doctors at the time who were give, you know performing the childbirth and then also um, dissecting a corpse for an autopsy. Um, not washing their hands in between. So someone would come up with corpse juice on their hands and then deliver a baby to a woman who's obviously, you know, open and bleeding and it's a very, you know, it's an open wound essentially that needs to be taken care of and they're touching it with all this, you know. Yeah, corpse juice. Corpse juice. Uh, That was like mind-opening and it kind of turned my stomach a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and the guy who t- who kind of set the record straight with all this ends up getting laughed out because these doctors, these pompous, arrogant fools, uh, refuse to listen to him about washing their hands. This is disgusting, Eleanor. Um, yeah, it was. And, um, you know, it, it, it was called childbed fever. And a lot of women who got through the childbirth itself and were delighted that they had survived, um, the baby survived, you know, they're really happy. And then a day or two later, they get 
a fever and, and they, um, they die. So Henry VIII had six wives, and two of them died of this. His mother died of this. Wow. Uh, and so his third wife, Jane Seymour, died after giving him Edward VI, the longed-for heir. And then his sixth wife died of childbed fever. After Henry died, she, she married Thomas Seymour, had a baby, and you know, died horribly a few days later. And we now know it, it's, caused, it's an infection caused by the doctor putting up you know, filthy hands and instruments into a woman during the delivery. It's so easily, you know, uh, preventable. This, this guy, Zemmelweiss, the, um, the doctor in the uh, mid-1800s in Vienna, who realized it had something to do with dirty hands and instruments, started a hand-washing regimen. And the other doctors were furious that they had to wash their hands, you know, to wash the corpse juice off the hands before um, delivering the babies. It actually drove him crazy, and they... they he ended up uh, beaten to death in an insane asylum by a guard, but um, he was he was really upset. People weren't listening to him. It's amazing to me that the human race has ever advanced because as soon as someone comes along to, with with revolutionary ideas, they end up getting killed by idiots. Like this is like it, throughout well, history. I, I mean, look at Martin Luther King and Jesus course, and Gandhi. I oh mean, my God. yes, run down the list. Yes. Right. Um, so I think people don't like to be told that they've been wrong all the time. It gets them really upset. It gets me upset. I hate it too, but I'm not going to go beat <laughs> someone up about it. Right. To death anyway. <laughs> well, and I love the fact that you love the corpse juice comment. And I should also point out that that's what spreads the zombie plague in most movies. Apparently they didn't have access to these types of stories back then. Uh, one other thing I, w I, w I would be remiss if we didn't mention. We're almost out of time, but we've got to talk about this, even if okay. it's quickly. Is I had no idea, and this is going to get gross, everyone listening, but how much that people defecated and urinated. This is the royals I'm talking about, all right. over the place, wherever they wanted to, and then they would move for two weeks while the servants cleaned up the, the residence. Did that really happen? Because that sounds utterly ridiculous, arguably the most unbelievable thing in your book, and you talk about some pretty crazy things. Yeah, no, it, I mean, there are so many um, records, uh, people, there are report. there were annual reports on the Louvre Palace and Versailles Palace, you, you know, just from an administrative standpoint, uh, how many uh, chickens did the court eat and all kinds of things like that. And so there was, was a part of them every year about how many people were defecating and urinating in oh. the, in the hallways and, you know, and um, you know, the court of Henry VIII moved 30, times during a year from one palace to the other, um, not for a change of fresh air, but because, you know, so that the, the servants would come out with scrub brushes and, and buckets and start, um, start removing all of the waste off of the walls and floors, the staircases, the hearths. I mean, people wrote letters about how bad the palaces smelled, that they would see turds in the hallway. Um, <laughs> so I didn't make this stuff up. I saw again and again in royal court records. Um, no, you know, this is men and women. This is men and women. Uh, no, no, of course not. It was the men. That's what I know. thought. I was going to say, this has got to be, it's got to be 80-20. Something's never changed. Right. It's you gotta... know, a lot of stairwells, like in parking garages, still smell of urine. I, don't, I doubt it was a woman. Yeah, it's like a New York subway station in these palaces. It's, it's unbelievable. So I imagine it's 80-20. Let's not give women off the hook completely, but I, I uh, will okay. accept there might have been 80%. One or two. Well, okay, so I could tell you a really bad quick story about okay. two women doing this. Okay. You know, all of these beautiful Baroque theaters where Dryden and Moliere debuted their, their plays. And you know how people had boxes? They had their own boxes where they would entertain, and they could fit I don't know, 12 or 15 sure. people in a box, and yeah. they could drink and eat and watch the show. So each one had a chamber pot. Now, I never knew this before. I assumed there were latrines outside or something, sure. but each one had a chamber pot. I assume it was behind a screen, but I don't really know. And so one evening in the 1670s in Paris, these two noble women used the pot, and it's, it made their, um, their box smell so bad, they just dumped it down onto the people below wow. in, the, in the pit. And everyone got so upset that they rioted, and the women you know, escaped barely with their lives. And this is number two we're talking about here. Yeah, big stinky number big, two in the pot. They, th they threw it down on top of the people that were sitting there watching a play. Unbelievable. 
That's unbelievable. I mean, yeah, that would. I'm. They shouldn't have gotten away. That should be an executable offense, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> the, oh, unbelievable. Well, so, so do you have time to stick around and talk about the Russian like modern poisonings for about ten I minutes? I do, or indeed. So? Yes. Oh, awesome. Yes. Okay. Um, so let let's do that. But in the meantime, tell people how to get your book. This it's fascinating. It's not out yet. I got an advanced copy because that's how I roll. But how, when is it coming out, and how can people get it? June twelfth. Um, you can order it now uh, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anywhere where they sell books. Um, I just got my my huge um, box of books this morning, so Ooh. I'm really excited about it. You awesome. probably get it quite soon. Oh wow, that's incredible! Um, it's a great book. There's we didn't even go into all the the investigations that you do on like I think it's about twenty or so um, historic poisonings. Uh, it's incredible stuff. I loved this book. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Well, um, they can email me through my website, which is Eleanor Herman. Dot com e l e a n o r h e r m a n and there are some amazing videos on there that I I did in costume like I put oh, on wow. mercury lead and arsenic um, makeup not really but you know it looked like it right. uh, to show the the beauty regimens of <laughs> the day so that, that's acting. really funny yeah right and I get into like was Napoleon really murdered by arsenic and so there are a lot of like really funny things on these um, three short videos so that's awesome. the website okay. um, and then I'm on um, Facebook. Uh, Eleanor Herman on Facebook, and then also Eleanor Herman author on Twitter, and also on Instagram, Eleanor Herman. So Eleanor Herman on Instagram, Facebook, and then Eleanor Herman author on Twitter. Correct. Awesome. Um, all right, I'll have links to all of links to all this stuff on the website. Eleanor, thank you so much for being on the program today. You're welcome. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to check out more about this episode and to listen to all the others. Plus, you can follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage, now redesigned for extreme accessibility. You're going to find all kinds of different things. If you like this show, you want to learn about more up-to-date backstage stuff, you can subscribe to the newsletter at the bottom of the page as well. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn, also links at the bottom of the page. If you like this show, you're going to love my recent podcast called Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I take pop culture technologies, explain them with a panel of experts, including world-renowned physicists, biologists, rocket scientists, and describe how we can turn these things into real life. We talk about Frankenstein's monster, the everlasting gobstopper, and even the matter transporters from the fly and from Star Trek. Interesting stuff. If you like those two podcasts, you're going to love everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to check out all that stuff. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.